You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 7, 1 through 52. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judah, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the 
dispersians among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, is, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as, of, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. We've been going through the book of John for months at this point. Um, and, and one of the things that I've been saying here pretty much on a monthly basis is that the gospel of John exists to help us know who Jesus truly is and why it matters. In John chapter 7, what we see is there's a lot of debate around who Jesus is, about his identity. Um, there, there's a bunch of murmuring going on. You see it several times in this passage, the people are murmuring about who Jesus is, what he's doing here, what he's all about. And this still is the case in our day and age. You get all kinds of people in our society saying, this is who I think Jesus is, or this is the vision, or this is, this is the man, Jesus Christ. And a lot of times it comes not from who Jesus has disclosed himself to be, but from the opinions of man. And what John aims to do is to clear the smoke of human opinion to help us to see things clearly, to see Jesus as he actually is, that our faith would be placed not in some, some counterfeit Jesus, but our faith would be placed firmly on the real Jesus Christ. And so John does this. He clears the smokes, pre presents Jesus to us so that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. This is really the thesis of John's gospel. And what we have today in chapter 7 is we see John expand this, this whole idea of who is Jesus and, and why do we need, why does it matter to have life in his name. He expands this to, to a, a greater extent that we've seen before. And really what one of the things this does is it tempers our expectations for what this life with Jesus or this life in Christ is really like. And so today... We'll make our way through this long passage, but I, I want to draw out, as I point to the real Jesus, two realities about this newfound life that we have in Christ. Two, two really important realities that we must reckon with and understand, because if we don't, 
If we don't grasp these realities, we will be very confused or perplexed or just discouraged about this life that we have in Christ. And so much so that a lot of people, they, they get to that point of confusion or, or feeling perplexed or discouragement, and they start to wonder, am I following Jesus right? Is this Christianity thing, is this really true, or am I doing it wrong? And, and sometimes if these doubts keep circulating and circulating, unfortunately, people will walk away from Jesus and leave the faith. And so I, what I wanna do is, is approach these things and prepare you for these realities of what it looks like to live uh, with Christ. And so let's do that first by unpacking the context of our, our text here and give a, a quick 30,000 foot view of what's going on in John chapter, I mean really from the beginning of John chapter one all the way uh, through John chapter eight. We're told that this scene in John chapter 7 is happening during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the feasts that God commanded his people to observe. Um, and, and it was an annual routine that they would go through. And in this feast, they would celebrate two things. Um, one, they would celebrate God's past provision, specifically the time frame of this feast would be around harvest time. And so as they're, they're bringing in crops, they're seeing God has provided for us in this, this, this moment in time. But it's meant to take them even back further to the time that God's people were wandering through the wilderness. They, this really brings them back to, and this is why it's called the, the Feast of Booths, is because while they were in the wilderness, it was giant, the giant camping trip for 40 years. God's people wandering through the desert, and they lived in, in these tents. And so what they would do for a week is they would have these tents. Um, people would pitch tents on their, their, their roofs of their houses. People would travel in from outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem um, and camp. And they would observe this time and remember God's past provision throughout the wilderness. And through this celebration, there were four themes that always are kind of going on at any time. Because it was um, the time of harvest, bread is associated with harvest, and then this idea of harvest and bread then connects it to the times when God would provide manna for them, raining that bread from heaven while they're out in the wilderness. Another thing, a theme that was going on during this celebration is that there would be a, a water ceremony. Um, they would bring in these, these large vessels of water. They would bring them into the temple and it would serve as a reminder of when God brought forth water from a rock while they were out in the wilderness and parched. They would also have a uh, a torch ceremony or a lighting ceremony where they'd bring in these torches with light and they'd bring them into the temple and they would light the lampstands that were there in the temple. That was to remind them of God who had gone before them as a pillar of light in the wilderness. And of course, the, the camping aspect, um, setting up their, their tents, their booths. All of this stuff was meant to point them backwards and to remind them of how God had provided uh, for them in the past. Now, this celebration, the Jews knew that. That's what it was existed for, to point backward in time. But what Jesus is telling us here in this passage is this festival, the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths, whatever you call it, is meant not just to point backwards, but ultimately it was meant to point to Jesus. It's as if Jesus is standing there in the midst of all of the people gathering together and Jesus is saying, it's all about me. Now, when you do this overview of John's gospel so far, it becomes very clear. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was God and the word put on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. Okay, there's your booth, there's your tabernacle. 
Jesus told us in John chapter 4 and with a Samaritan woman at the well, and now we see it again this week in 7, an allusion to living water, going back to the water from the rock. We see Jesus say in John chapter 6, he was talking about the bread of life, a better bread than what Moses gave while they were out in the wilderness. And if you jump ahead to next week, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. All of these themes that were circulating here in the festival of booths, Jesus is standing there in the midst of the people and saying, it's all about me. And all of these themes through the festival of booths was meant to point to God's orchestration of salvation. And Jesus stands there and says, it all goes through me. I am the true and better bread, true and better water. I am the the, the God who dwells among you. I am God Almighty, Son of God, the light of the world. Now, this is one of the reasons why it's so essential for us as Christians to read our Old Testament. See, if we don't read our Old Testament, it sounds like when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world or I'm the bread of life, it just sounds like he's throwing out these random phrases. And you're like, oh, that's a weird thing to say. But really, all of them are rooted in the tradition of God's people and his story of redemption. In order to understand who Jesus truly is, we have to study the Old Testament. Because all of these things are signposts that point forward to him, the the yes and amen to all of God's promises. This is the, the unfolding of God's revelation, of God's working out of salvation for his people. Now, it's easy for us to stand here now. We've got the Old Testament, we've got the New Testament, and we can start to connect these pieces and see how it all fits together. But what we see here in John chapter 7 is that not everybody has the vantage point, especially during Jesus' ministry, to see all of these, thing, these themes uh, come together, right, and, and find their fulfillment in Christ. And the guys who were introduced first to first in this passage, who don't understand it, are Jesus' own half-brothers. Um, these, are, these are guys, John chapter 5 tells us, uh, John 7 verse 5 says that not even Jesus' own brothers believed him. Now, these are Jesus' half-brothers in the sense that um, Mary was their mother, Joseph was their father. Um, the, the Catholic Church says that, that Mary had, was in this per- perpetual state of virginity, but then here we have Jesus actually having biological brothers who um, right now we see they don't believe, but they will eventually come to believe, and James is one of them who gave us the epistle of James. But his own brothers who grew up with him, who are watching his ministry life unfold, who listened to the things he said, they didn't see who Jesus truly was. What they think of Jesus, this is their opinion of Jesus, they think that he's some kind of a cultural influencer, right? Some sort of, of TikTok celebrity. And his, his goal is to amass a crowd, to, to draw followers to himself, just because he's sort of a spectacle, sort of this, this interesting fella, and, and this is very clear in verse 3 when they start talking to him. Um, when they say, okay, the fe- Feast of Booths is going on, is at hand. They want Jesus to go down there with them. So his brother said to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So here they think, you know, Jesus is trying to amass followers, and the best way to do that, the, like this is, this is how, you know, to, to be an influencer, go to the place where the people are. Put out a product that people are interested in, and, and you'll draw people into, them to, into Jesus. Now, 
what Jesus makes clear to us is that that is not his identity. Jesus isn't just some kind of cultural influencer, uh, uh, and so he decides not to go down with them in public at that time. And if you go down to verse 6, Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After the saying, Jesus remained in Galilee. Now, one of the things that we've been introduced to throughout John's gospel already is the fact that that Jesus only says the things the Father says, and Jesus only does the things the Father does. But this, as we see this phrase, my time or my hour has not come, this is telling us that not only does Jesus do the things that only the things that God does, he does it only in God's timing. This certain death that will come at the hand of the Jews, Jesus knows there's an hour. He knows there's an hour where his blood would be shed. But he doesn't rush in prematurely. He has more work to do. The the Father has planned for him to do more works before his time expires. Now this is also um, referenced to the fact that, that the Jews who are going to kill him is referenced back to verse one. If you go back and remember when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day, this, the guy that was on the, the pool side, the response that Jesus got from the Jewish leaders was they were upset and it was this increasing um, hostility toward him where, where initially they, they just didn't like him, they persecuted him, they got hostile and now they wanted to kill him and they still, even as Jesus has been physically removed away from, from Jerusalem up in, uh, up in Galilee, they still have this animosity towards him. And so Jesus, knowing that they want to kill him, he says, I, I'm not going there in public. So he ditches the influencer approach, and instead, Jesus quietly makes his way to Jerusalem, as we see in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Now to this day, there's still muttering about Jesus. People are still trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And one of the most common things that you hear from people about their view of Jesus is he's just a good guy. He's just a slightly better than average man who did some good stuff in the world. And so we, you know, we saw it right there. He's just, he's a good man. And then on the other hand, you have people say, no, he, he's actually, he's dangerous. He's leading people astray. He's, he's trying to sway people away from what is right and true. But one of the things that you have to realize is that though Jesus is oftentimes thinking, thought of as, as a good guy, a nice man or like a cool uncle, just sort of with it with the times, very rarely do good guys get crucified. Very rarely do good men get publicly humiliated for what they've said and what they've done. And so we see that 
that version, that opinion about Jesus gets sort of swept away as the story unfolds. On the flip side of this, people are saying he's a menace. This Jesus, he's leading people astray. He's a threat to life as we know it. Now, this is wrong because Jesus comes to lead people back to the Father. So so they're wrong in the sense that Jesus is not leading people astray, but rather leading them to the Father. But they're right in the sense that Jesus is, in fact, dangerous. That Jesus does bring about some trouble. Jesus is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is dangerous to evil, to the world. In fact, that's, that's why he says in, if you go back to verse seven, when he says, um, the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus came to dismantle the, the, the powers of the world, to break the strongholds. And so when when people meet the real Jesus, when sinners meet the real Jesus, there is a threat. There's a threat to your sin. There's a threat to your flesh, the things that you want to do, the way that your heart is bent towards evil. Jesus will disrupt those things. Jesus will topple the idols of your heart. He will come in and confront you in your sin. And so in this way, they're right. Jesus isn't safe. And we see that this, this talk, you've got Jesus the good man, you've got Jesus this dangerous man. This talk of Jesus is buzzing, lots of murmuring, but it's not done in a public way. It's very much kept under wraps because people, as verse 13 says, they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. And so this murmuring that happens, you see it, it's caused by fear. Now, when you see the people murmuring about Jesus, we must contrast that to the boldness of Jesus that we see in verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. So the temple would have been a hot spot. That's where a lot of the people are. And he began teaching. So here you see the contrast, the fear of the crowds talking in secret, this murmuring, this this, this stuff going about Jesus. And Jesus has no fear of man, and he goes and presents himself in the middle of the temple, and he starts teaching. Not only does he make himself visible, not only does he start talking and and drawing attention to himself, what he's saying is confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he, he lays this all out in verses 19 through 23. So the people who are after him, the people who want to shed his blood, Jesus is standing up and he's addressing them. And one of the things that Jesus really drives at here, he he makes this last statement um, as he's talking to them. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, the whole thing that Jesus is identifying is the fact that, that their assessment of Jesus is skewed because of their feelings. Their, their version of Jesus, or the way that they see Jesus is, is um, tainted because they think that Jesus is this big troublemaker who came and healed on the Sabbath. He's wanting to break Moses' commandments and try to lead people astray in that way. But really what Jesus is doing is showing their hypocrisy that with this whole talk about circumcision, like you'll, you'll circumcise on the Sabbath, you gotta obey that rule, but then you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, which one is it? And 
But Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. And so he calls them out. Don't think with your feelings. Don't think with wrong judgment. Instead, use right judgment to assess the reality. Now, in this dialogue with the Pharisees, or this in the middle of the temple, we see not only is Jesus calling out the people who want to hurt him, but the people are actually really impressed with Jesus' teaching. If you go down towards the end of, of the passage in verse 46, um, some of the officers say, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like him. There's something captivating. There's something authoritative about the way that Jesus talked in public. And, and he explains why his teaching is so special in verse 15. Jesus says, the, the Jew, or it says, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. So he's not a scholar. He's not, this, this, uh, he's not on a Pharisee or a rabbi track. Jesus is just an a nor, a nor, ordinary, normal guy. So Jesus answered them. Here's why my teaching is so unique. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks with his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who sees, seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus points to the reality that he's speaking not on his own account, not by his own authority, but he's, he's speaking the words that God the Father in his authority has put in his mouth. Now this is really the preacher's aim. This is, this is my hope every Sunday when I get up behind the pulpit that I'm up here speaking God's words, not my own. That I'm up here speaking God's truth, not my own opinion. And it wouldn't be for my good or for my glory, but rather for God's. Jesus sets this model for us that he comes to speak not on his own authority, but on the authority of God, seeking the glory of God. And this is what preaching is. It's, it's imitating that. Now, if you keep reading down the page, um, you start to see more and more of these opinions of Jesus circulate. Don't have time to unpack all of them, but let me just highlight them. Verse 26, people start wondering, might this Jesus be the Christ? Again, remember, there's, he's done miracles. He's performed works and signs. In verse 32 through 36, people, he, Jesus says, where, where I'm going, you can't go. And, and they're like, what does he mean by this? Is he going to the dispersion? Is he running among the Greeks? What's he going to do? Or is Jesus a fugitive on the run? Verse 40, people wonder, is this the prophet? Is this the one who Deuteronomy 18 tells us will come uh, in, in the way of Moses? Verse 26, verse 41, again, there's, there's, could he be the Christ, right? This theme of the Christ keeps circulating. But then in verse 42, people are like, no, he can't be the Christ because the Christ comes from Bethlehem. Jesus comes from Nazareth or, or Galilee. The Christ has to be from the line of David. They, they didn't realize Jesus' lineage, and so they're dismissing Jesus because he doesn't meet the, the prophecies that they thought. They, they didn't have the full view of things. You got some people think he's, he's demon-possessed. When Jesus says, why do you seek to ki kill me? The crowd answers, you've got a demon. He's a madman. He's lost his marbles. Yet through this jumble of opinions, Jesus again begins to self-disclose. Jesus tells us who he is. 
In verse 28, I mean, even when he's talking about um, speaking not on his own account, but on the Father's account, right? The, the, the Son of God. And then in verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. Again, the Father has sent me. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus is telling them, I am the heaven-sent Son of God. There's no one else like me. There's no one else who can say, I am the bread of life. There's no one else who can give living water. There's no one else who can put on flesh and dwell among you as they are God. And then in verse 37, Jesus makes this cry. He says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, even after Jesus gives this self-disclosure as the son of God, as this one who gives the living water. I mean, you keep going down further, you start to see that, that it says this in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others says he is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. See, even after Jesus has given his own self-disclosure, there are still opinions circulating. And it's not just Jesus who gives his own self-disclosure. He's giving the testimony of the Father. Right? Which is what he says. If, if you hear my voice, you, you know, and you know the Father, you know the words that I'm speaking are true. So Jesus stands here and says, just as God gave water from the rock in the wilderness, now from the rock of ages comes living water. Yet there's still disagreement. There's not an agreement. Now, we must understand that the real Jesus is divisive. The real Jesus is divisive. In fact, you see this in Luke chapter 12. Let me flip to it here real quick. Luke 12, 51 through 53 says this. In fact, um, this is the heading, not peace, but division. It says, do you think, Jesus' words, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one's house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus, we have to realize this. That we, we cannot try to, to tinker this reality apart in Christianity or we will lose Christianity. Christianity, Jesus is divisive because falsehood cannot exist with truth. This is why Jesus keeps talking about the one who speaks. He is true. God is true. The one who testifies on behalf of God. There's no falsehood in him. Falsehood and truth cannot coexist just like light and dark cannot coexist. There is divide. Now, this is hard for many people to grasp 
right? Because there's, there's something in us that wants to say, man, why, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just be one nice big family? And in pursuit of false peace, people try to take Jesus, water him down to make him more palatable. And what you end up with is this sort of coexist religion that basically boils Jesus down or faith down to a point where it's the lowest common denominator, where you cut out all of the offensive bits. You cut out all the stuff that's hard, like those hard sayings that we saw last week, until you have a Jesus who's effectively useless, who's no God. See, this is, this is the fallacy that if we can agree on a false Jesus, a watered-down Jesus, then people will be unified. You can't have it that way. Only in believing in the real Jesus are people unified. There are no shortcuts. There are no second options. See, one of the things that Jesus, there's going to be divide between belief and unbelief, from faith and faithlessness. But in those who have true faith in the true Jesus, there is this strong unity. In fact, the Apostle Paul prays about this. He, He brings this. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There is this unity that Christians can have when they say, this is the real Jesus, and we agree. That's when unity in the church is found. To be of the same mind means we have to think God's thoughts after him. We're not trying to throw out and say, well, let's have a, have a majority vote about how we're going to interpret Jesus. No, no, no. The church says, what did God say? And that's what we conform to. And when we do, then there is unity. There is a divide here over Jesus. And we will either accept the truth of who Jesus is and believe him, or we will reject it. There there is no neutral ground. It's Faith or rejection. And one of the things that we see that we ought to be encouraged by in verse 31 is that many people believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Many people look at the evidence that's before their eyes and say, yeah, that, that's gotta be the Christ. I believe him. Nobody else can talk the way he is. Nobody else has his authority. No one else can do the things that he does. His, his ministry is verified by God the Father. And so they believe. And to this day, God is still granting people the faith to believe in him. God is still opening up the eyes of people so they would truly see the real Jesus. Now, when we come to faith, when we believe, these are the two realities that we need to be prepared for. When when we believe we receive this eternal life, we need to be prepared for reality number one, that division is real. And with division comes hostility towards those who believe. That's a reality. That that if, if you 
love Jesus, the world hates you. Now you can see this in the fact that, that Jesus in verse seven says, the world hates me because I, I testify to its evil doing. But you can also see it flare up in, in these micro spots where we don't know exactly if these guys have fully put their faith in Jesus and really know, but they're at least sympathetic to what Jesus is saying. You see it with the guards. The, the Pharisees sent the guards out to arrest Jesus so they could put him on trial and they come back empty handed and, and they're just dumbfounded by Jesus. They, they say, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees shoot back and he answers them, have you also been deceived? Right? They start to mock them and ridicule what the, what the officials think about Jesus. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Right? They're saying, you guys are idiots. None of the real, like, real believers, the real men of God are, are agreeing with you about Jesus. Yet, here they are. They're being despised because at least their ears are open to Jesus. Same thing happens with Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus who, who talked to Jesus, there was that whole d d discourse about being born again. Nicodemus, this is the guy, uh, a Pharisee. He kind of stands up for Jesus in this moment. He pushes back as, as they're wanting to, to have Jesus um, arrested and put on trial. Nicodemus shoots back. Um, it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he says or what he does? And they replied to him, are you from Galilee too? Are you, are you a peasant? Right, because there's this real, this real idea that if, if Nicodemus is, actually has a, has a very strong heritage, a, a strong family lineage of being reputable, um, high view of society, uh, in society, they're viewed very highly, his family's name was. Yet he's being ridiculed as some, some Galilean peasant. And they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, just by being sympathetic or being open to the, the, the testimony of Jesus, these guys are, are they, they get sharp tongues from the Pharisees. This is because the world hates Jesus. And to love Jesus is to be hated by the world. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. To be at peace with the world, to, to not experience strain or tension or to feel the animosity or the enmity that is placed between, between faith and unbelief. If you don't experience that pull, that strain, that tension, that's a dangerous spot to be in. Because it means that you're, you're likely more in love with the world than you are loving Jesus. See, if, if your allegiance is to Jesus, it will cause enmity. It's like your, your life as a Christian will be dealing with the antithesis, the, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yet here's the thing, if we're not prepared for this reality, if we're not prepared for the division and the hostility that comes when we put our faith in Jesus, what's going to happen is that you're going to feel this tension, this pull, it's going to feel uncomfortable, and you're going to want to like escape from that strain. You're going to want to dilute Christianity. 
to something that it's not. So then now no longer does the world want to attack you. And that's where the danger lies. Because if you take Christianity and start dismantling it or, or um, what, what's it called, deconstructing it to the point where it's cool with society, then you no longer have a true faith. But this temptation to, to like have the easy way has been working very powerfully through the last couple decades. Through, through evangelical world, you see all kinds of people turning away from the faith, deconstructing, apostatizing, because this enmity, enmity is too hard to deal with. They want to avoid the tension. See, if we're not prepared for reality number one, that, that escape hatch is going to sound very appealing to us. Now, if we are able to grasp reality number one, the fact that there is enmity, reality number one will be very overwhelming if it weren't for reality number two. See, if reality number one is all that there is, and I, on my own strength, am, am meant to resist the world, its temptations, to resist the flesh, then that sounds like an exhausting endeavor. But this is reality number two that, that helps alleviate that burden or that, that desire or that, the feeling that it's up to me and myself to make this happen. Look at verse 38. When Jesus stood up, it says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in that moment, Jesus had not yet been glorified because he was still here on earth. But what he was speaking about was this, the fact that, that rivers of living water would come from the heart of belief is saying that the spirit of God would be given to those who are truly in the faith. That when you believe in Jesus' name, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit puts something in you that wasn't there before. Where your heart was dry and parched, God puts refreshing waters. Now, waters of, of living water spew from the heart of the Christian. Now, all the hostility that is meant to deter you from following Jesus, from being obedient to his lordship is now counteracted by the Holy Spirit who empowers you, who encourages you, who strengthens you so that even when there is opposition, the water still flows from you that allows you to be satisfied in Christ when the world is trying to convince you that it's a futile effort, endeavor. Now, here's, here's where this whole thing like gets another nice little bow that I get put, put on this whole thing. What Jesus is saying here, in, in the middle of the Feast of Booths, not only is Jesus saying, I am here dwelling among you in the flesh, but now my spirit, when you believe in me, will be in the heart of every believer. God now resides in the heart of Christians. And because the Spirit is there, the Spirit helps you to be satisfied in Christ. Because the Spirit is there, it now strengthens you to resist the pull of the culture. In all of this, all of this 
happens because Jesus is who he says he is and he has done what the Lord has appointed for him to do. See, if it weren't for Jesus, if Jesus weren't glorified, if he hadn't lived, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, being glorified right now at the right hand of the Father, then Jesus would be of no help to us. The Spirit, we would not have a spirit to help us. But because Jesus has come and through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we have been washed by his blood. When Jesus was crucified, blood and water flowed from his side so that we would be justified and brought back into relationship with the Father, that we would be sanctified. So now that we would be a a fitting vessel for the Holy Spirit to reside in. And from the heart of true faith, now comes life-giving water that's not just for us to drink, but to be shared with the world, to share the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, to feed our hungry souls, to give us drink as we're parched, to give us dwelling and to dwell in us that we would see the salvation of the Lord just as the festival of booths was meant to point to how God has orchestrated it. But now as Christians, we look back and we see how all of it is wrapped up, all of it is summed up in the person and work of Christ. And so with these two realities, that there will be opposition, but the spirit of God is at work within us, we press on in faith. We, we stay the course following Jesus and he graciously supplies us with living water that flows from our hearts for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark. The fact that you've redeemed us, you've given us eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. But the reality is that this life does not run unopposed. There's hardship There's struggle, there's opposition. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would uphold your people, this church, even that she would be fortified, that we would not resist, Lord, but we would press on, that we would wage war against the world and the darkness and the powers that are running it in the flesh. Lord, that we would testify to the the work of Christ, that he has broken the strongholds, that he has defeated the grave, and in him we now have life and life eternal. We pray, Lord, that through us, from us, by faith, and the Spirit's dwelling, would living water just flow from our hearts? Would it be a blessing to this world? Even even those who want to persecute us, Lord, those who want to, to turn against us, that they would find a blessedness in seeing your love for your enemies that we once were too. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for this meal that we get to share in right now, Lord, a true brotherhood, true sisterhood in Christ that we get to be joined together through what Christ has done. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name.